Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Arnie Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Our guest this time, Sports Pro Senior Contributor, uh, co-founder of Two Circles, veteran of the sports entertainment and music industries, and now twice published author, Matt Rogan. Hi, Matt. Hello. How are you doing? I'm not sure I want to be called a veteran. <laughs> um, how do you be called a veteran sound? That, that makes, me, makes me feel really well, old. But... I think in, in the literal sense in that you've, you've, you know, you've been through the campaigns. Is is how you uh, how you define that? I don't know. All right, I'll, um, wasn't wasn't an age then? Uh, I know. Don't believe you for a minute. Well, look, thanks for having me on. It's nice to be. It's nice to be at the other side of the mic for once. Um, I've enjoyed yeah, doing all the playbooks. Yeah, I've enjoyed doing all the um, all the playbook pods. But it's it's nice to to be on the other side of a mic and not thinking furiously about the questions I'm going to ask for the the hours leading up to it. So, boots on the other foot today, mate. Yeah. It is. It is. Well, you have a uh, lot to talk about. You have a new book out with Kerry Potter, All to Play For, How Sport Can Reboot Our Future. Plenty to dive into. I think it explores a lot of the themes that your playbook series has done, but also kind of some broader societal stuff about sport's role uh, as we go further and further into the 21st century and hopefully out of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Um but yeah, let's start with the obvious question, Matt. What was it that that drove you to write this? So I guess there's 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 probably three things really, um, two of which are, are serious, and one of which is slightly flippant. Um, so so the, the main things really were, um, I, I guess, I am in love with and passionate about the role that that sport can play in our society and. Although most of the people listening to this podcast will know me as a as a guy that co-founded a, a successful data and digital focus agency, you know, I'm interested in in a wide portfolio of stuff in sport. I'm interested in why um, girls stop playing certain sports at the age of twelve or thirteen. I'm interested in um, actually how we keep people out of um, doctors' surgeries by making them or helping them become more active. I'm interested in um, why it is my kid seems to do better in school exams when I've taken him for a jog before he goes to school in the morning as opposed to when I haven't. And so that broad church is all stuff that I've kind of noticed in my experience of sport over the last 10 to 15 years. And also noticed that nobody tries to look at that together. Nobody tries to look at um, the impact of sport in terms of how Marcus Rashford can credibly be on the news pages, the business pages, and the sports pages of, of the paper in a single day, but nobody works out how, how those things link together. So I guess it was just trying to join the dots with, in terms of my love affair with sport and therefore maybe make a case for sport being taken more serious, seriously in the corridors of power because of its potency. So that was the first one. Um, the second reason for writing it, I think, is probably because um, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And, and through the course of um, the early stages of, of lockdown last year, with the benefit of a bit of time, sort of was a, 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 and that was the time that I was I was less involved in the in the day to day at Two Circles as well. I just had the time to reflect on on the role of sport, it's my relationship with it, and what it means to me, and what I think it means to a lot of other people. Um, that was the second thing, and the third thing, slightly more flippantly, was lockdown. Of course, coincided with the kids being at home. Um, and so for me meant I could either hide in a hide in the study and, and try and crack a book out or I could homeschool my very willful uh, nine going 10 year old daughter on the fronted adverbial. Um, and so frankly, it was the, the book was the natural choice <laughs> against that threat. What's a fronted adverbial? Just for the benefit of our listeners. I still don't know to this day. I, I still don't know to this day. I've got um, a, a, a languages degree from a good university. Um, she's the second child I've had to nurture through this, and I still couldn't tell you. Michael Gove's no. um, English curriculum has a has a lot to answer for, I think, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, and the secrets to uh, 
to deconstructing grammar are not found within the pages of all to play for but let's talk about what is um what's the thesis that you you kind of hit upon um but what actually i think was probably quite interesting but particularly because of the time that that you did come to write it and i know it's something you were thinking about before the pandemic but the fact that you were writing it through that period i think is interesting but what was the thesis that you went into it with and how did that change over the course of some of the conversations that you had and, and some of the research that you did? So I guess my uh, I went into the writing of the book, which would have been um, to the back end of, of um, 2000 and where are we now? 2021. So it would have been the back end of 2019, early 2020, with, with a, just an intuitive feeling that sport was getting itself sorted out by which I mean we were starting to understand as a professional sports industry how we needed to change and why we needed to change a pivot to be relevant to newer generations. Um, And also we were starting to just have little telltale signs that um, some doctor surgeries up and down the country were starting to understand how to genuinely use exercise um, as part of a means of prevention rather than cure of illness. And that... um, some developers in my local area were starting to think about um, actually doing more than than putting a, a little park in a in a local community when they were building one from scratch. And the um, uh, a charity that I work with, a charity called Stormbreak, based in in South England, were were starting to get some amazing results from the using exercise in a more integrated way across every lesson on the curriculum. So just little sprigs and signs of life and. I guess the pandemic, from my perspective, probably did two things. Firstly, um, it obviously halted a lot of that progress in its tracks. But secondly, it, it at the same time, it, it sort of forced the agenda at uh, certainly in the UK government level, and I believe in North America as well, in terms of saying, well, look, um, this is what happens to kids' productivity if you take all exercise and social engagement away from them. This is what happens actually when you don't have collective exercise and park runs and so on as a means to to keep the diabetic communities in this country um, looking after themselves and they can't do anything other than look to fast food as a means of, of, of eating. Um, two small examples, but my sense was we were making great progress before the pandemic and then it hit. And, and on one level, we were, all the progress was halted in its tracks. On another level, actually... Um, Right at the top of, of of government, I think we started to see actually sport is something that needs to be taken more seriously in a more integrated way in, in terms of the way in which we look. And that was true of making decisions to bring the Premier League back because of its the, the mood um, it created across the country and distraction it gave the country. That was true of um, some of the exercise and things that government allowed people to continue with despite the fact we were during lockdown. That was true of... Um, some of the things that were mandated to schools, they needed to bring back quickly when kids were able to go back into schools. Um, and that was also true of, of some of the people who in the UK at least became sort of household names out of nowhere, the Joe Wickses and co of this world um, through lockdown period to try and preserve some of the rituals that, that we ourselves become, have become so important to us. So um, I guess uh, lockdown and pandemics, short-term curse, of course, but potentially um, long-term benefit. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot of the things you're talking about kind of thematically are, you know, concerned with the connectedness and the... Um, That's exactly it. The, the need to bring things together when it comes to, to the sports industry. Um, but let's look at... Let's, let's separate those elements for, for now and then... Um, we can get back to that vision, I guess, as, as we go along. Mm-hmm. Just looking at sport as an industry, you you know, one of the things that you, you talk about towards the start of the book is that it is different. And it's something you alluded to just there when you were talking about Marcus Rashford turning up in three sections of the newspaper. Um, you know, and you've lent on your experience both professionally and over the course of putting the playbook podcast together and, uh, and this book as well on in other other bits of media in entertainment in music um what are the defining characteristics are there defining characteristics that that make sport different or is it the fact that it's kind of a a bit of a mishmash of all these different bits of other industries 
how is how is sport different? So, so I guess there are relatively few things in our lives nowadays that that can still create those water cooler moments that that still um, connect with um, millions and on a global level billions of people in in a similar way. If you look at the way that um, other forms of music and entertainment have fragmented. Um, compared to sports you know whilst the distribution of sport has, has fragmented um, the the consolidation of interest amongst the kind of top 10 sports in uh, globally um, dwarfs the consolidation of interest in things like music or things like arts or theater or, or anything else um, with the possible exception of of Fortnite, but we might get onto that um, and so to that extent, in, in a fragmenting world, sport is one of the, th- the few things that can still bring us together. Um, and so to that extent, um, it carries an importance um, in terms of its emotional pull, but it also carries an importance in terms of um, the benefits, the, the tangible benefits that endorphins and cardiovascular fitness and mental fitness bring to all of us that... Um, Believe me, having worked in in the music industry for a few years, as you say, you know <laughs> some of the knock-ons of of active engagement in the mu- in music and the music industry are less good for your health <laughs> um, than than some engagement with with sport and physical activity can be. So, um, to that extent, I think it's it's both emotional pull and physical and mental benefit that that creates this this really interesting space that it holds for our society an opportunity it holds for our society um that and um you put all that next to generational shift which is a big part of the book looking in 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 quite a lot of detail at that um and the increasing demands and um, unique difficulties of younger generations are going to have walking into the society that we live in um looking for um, a more holistic, less capitalistic, arguably, um, view of the world than previous generations and find themselves attaching to, whether it's Rashford or LeBron James or or Fortnite or anything else, you know, other sources of authority and learning and influence than any of us were allowed growing up in a world where kind of political forces, be it, governments be it corporates sort of held quite a lot a lot more sway for our generations than they did for um than they do for newer generations who have been dealt a a fairly tough hand Mm. um so i think it's both the the power of sport but also the generational shift leading um newer generations have more propensity to attach themselves to it those two things together i think are are quite potent yeah and do you think so much is made about the challenge for sport in that generational shift but when you line it up like that and you talk about uh people who want to have a a way of connecting with the world holistically uh you think about the importance of lifestyle the importance of values the importance of all of those all of those type of things does that create an opportunity for sport that's maybe greater than it is in some other area in some other industry sorry or in some other walks of life because of the way that it touches upon all of those things yeah I, for me undoubtedly uh, and i'm lucky because i live in a 24 7 focus group in my family albeit you know white middle class la, da, 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 i think in the book we called it um the 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 toxic hand that had been delivered to newer generations and the toxic alphabet so you've got an alphabet of austerity brexit covid and debt that, that this newer generation are finding themselves walking into. I haven't thought of a decent E yet, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Um, <laughs> if you're walking into that, um, how, how do you think you're, as a, as a 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 25-year-old, how do you think you're going to react to traditional bastions of power telling you how to behave and telling you um, the way things need to be done and telling you the way that you must sit for a certain type of education or the way in which you must listen to this 5 p.m. briefing to tell you how you're going to have to behave and what's going to happen to your next six months. At some point, you're going to start thinking, well, look, um, actually, 
older generations, you're not dealt me a particularly good hand here. And I'm going to think slightly differently, slightly more independently about the things that are important. And, you know, I maybe I don't want a lifelong career given I'm not going to be able to afford a house anyway. Maybe I don't want to just move into um, the the kind of drink yourself silly age 40 type generational way of, of living that my generation did. And maybe I want to think slightly differently about my habits, my nutrition, my lifestyle. And so um, what I notice in, in newer generations, frankly, is is to wish they were running the country today in a lot of cases. Um, and, and that openness, uh, I think, is absolutely fundamental to the way sport needs to reposition itself because, because younger generations are there, they are willing, and they are um, they are wanting to embrace newer things. Um, I'm a massive fan of the uh, the trust index that the comms agency Edelman produce every year. And, and they have a view that um, they have a great two by two grid, which you can look at for free if you want online. And it's they basically suggest that the trust in an institution or an individual is a, is a blend of two things. It's a blend of competence, so believing in somebody or something's competence and ethics so believing in somebody's ethics are, are those that you share um and on a two by two grid they they look at ngos um who they um all their survey data suggests that uh, ngas are viewed as very ethical but not particularly competent mm-hmm. um, in major western nations in particular um they look at uh, corporates who they view as competent in the way they go about their um, their work, um, but not particularly ethical. Mm. Um, and right now, and in particular in the course of the last ten years, now they look at we look at government. They're sadly in in some Western nations, including Britain and including the States. Interestingly, they're viewed as neither competent or ethical. Right. So actually, in terms of traditional institutions, you've got nobody in that top right box, both competent mm. and ethical. So why do you think Marcus Rashford, who's clearly exceptional at what he does, but also extremely ethical in the way he goes about living his life? Why do you think LeBron James? Why do you think um, even Colin Kaepernick, by these younger generations who notice and are personally impacted by some of the cock-ups in in our generation have, have delivered to them? Why do you think they trust in those kind of individuals? You know, why do you think Imran Khan ends up as as running Pakistan? You know, it's it's for reasons like that, and so um, that is the opportunity now more than ever that is presented to sport. Mm. It is interesting because the other side of that coin of, uh, particularly when it comes to to top level organised sport, is being guilty or being perceived to be guilty of co option of of certain values and and you know taking things from people, repackaging them and selling them back to them, basically, or being dishonest in the way that you pursue certain values. Um, And also to be more generous, some of the complication that comes with being an organization as opposed to an individual that tries to set itself certain ethical standards. I mean, I think one of the things about making a statement, if you're an individual, yes, there will be people who are out to take you down. But for the most part, people accept the kind of, contradictions and compromises that an, a person makes because they can empathize and they find that harder with an organization because it always feels like there's an ulterior motive. Um, but, you know, when you think about the tangle that UEFA has got itself into over uh, over the, the pride symbols and, and rainbow flags and doing more than paying lip service to the idea of inclusion when it comes to LGBTQ plus communities, What's the what's the way that sport plots a path through that? Does it does it become then more about community, more about giving more people a stake in how something's run? Because then, for all the con, you know, for all the contradictions, you end up with something that's closer to what the people wanted in the first place. Oh, it's a brilliant question. I mean, the um, first thing I'd say is I think that sport has um, the sport industry has a serious reputational industry amongst rep- reputational issue amongst the broader public um, because, of course, the only times that the business of sports um, is mentioned in the press would tend to be, you, you know, European Super Leagues or ticket prices or, um, 
uh, free-to-air events going on to pay TV. Um, and I think sport does a uniquely bad job of explaining the broader perspective that comes with it. So let me give you an example. Let me say, let's look at the Olympics coming up this summer. Most of the conversations I've heard in the in the general media, with the exception of a really good BBC sport pod, actually, talk to the fact that, um, you know, approval ratings in Japan talk about so the athletes being compromised, hosting in a pandemic environment, um, talk about the fact that international fans can't go, talk about the fact that um, people won't be able to shout out loud at the event. Um, and nobody, um, I, I think, is making a case to say, well, yeah, all those things are true and nobody is claiming this idea. This is ideal. Mm. However, um, the Olympic Games doesn't create financial wealth for its kind of broader development of commercial gain. It, it creates financial wealth. It will distribute that globally to maintain international federations, to maintain... Um, Olympic federations around the world and keep Olympic sport moving. And I don't hear anyone making that argument. Mm. And I think until we get more eloquent and stronger at making that argument in broader media, we'll continue to be seen, in particular by younger generations, as as, as an upholding uh, an outdated and explicitly commercial view of what sport is for. Mm. Um, I actually, at this point, sound a little bit holier than thou about it, but I made a um, a confession in the book, which is which is often um, when I find myself in a cab ride in London, um, uh, I don't say that I work in the sports industry because I then get 15 minutes of assailing from taxi drivers on the fact that they're all on drugs or it's too commercial or it's too expensive or why have we got all these international players playing in England or does anyone care about Wimbledon anymore, whatever it might be. And so in the book, I just kind of lay out what I say. If I'm feeling brave, what I lay out as the, as the counter case to all of those things on behalf of the industry. And I think we need to be better at that. At the same time, however, if I look at the suggestions that the IOC are um, going to continue to try to create an apolitical environment of the games, in particular on the podium, um, or... Um, UEFA struggles getting their heads around uh, the LGBTQ plus discussions that are going on in particular as pertains to Hungary. I just think, yeah, that is utterly unsustainable. Mm. Um, the last organization I, I saw that, that tried to put some constraints around that were the NFL with Colin Kaepernick and look what happened. You know, that was ultimately, even in um, conservative North America, that was utterly unsustainable. And so, um, the way in which we as an industry um, can continue to put a strong case forward is if we recognize that um, if we are, I'm 46, if, we, if we're 46 or up or maybe even 40 or up, we recognize that the reality is our future customer base has very different attitudes and very different perceptions of what is right to us. And, you know, we got to change or we got to hand the baton on pretty bloody quick. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The SportsPro Podcast, we're listening to. Brings us on to another of the themes that you, uh, that you reflect on, which is the age of the sports industry itself you, you know you talk about it being um in, in an adolescent phase where it's kind of you know it's a teenager it's still prone to moments of brilliance and clumsiness in in equal measures i think is one of the one of the phrases that um that you get in there but what's um in in what respects do you, are you are we talking about that are we talking about i mean some of the models are quite simplistic still i suppose for um for sport it's still a kind of b2b get product out, get money in, and that doesn't really reflect the relationship that it has with, with its fans, I suppose, in, in, in some ways, uh, or not directly anyway. But then are there, are there other other ways in which it has to mature as an industry? Is it just the case that it hasn't been outside the US, perhaps, 
a taken seriously as a business for more than a couple of generations you know more than 50 60 years yeah i, I guess it well the first thing i recognized um in writing the book was that you know i've 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 been working in the in the sports industry for about 25 years which is off, off, all, almost um half its lifetime um if it's sort of 60 odd years old and that's that's particularly scary and obviously i've seen it um i've seen it improve and and mature in in a number of areas without being the finished object in any of them i think um the boards that i sit on um as a white middle class male the efforts that i see all those boards making to become more diverse in in thought and action is a material improvement on the industry that i walked into um uh 25 years ago um if I notice the, I guess, a recognition of um, athlete rights in the broadest sense and the need to look after athletes and, and put the right support around them to be at their best, that's far better than it was uh, in the days when Mark McCormack had a dream about a business, um, although still has a, has a lot of work to go in that regard. Um, I, I think we can overcomplicate the... Um, the, a lot of the business decisions made in sport because I think ultimately any business um, has to be at a point to a long-term sustainable customer base. And that's true if you're um, Accrington Stanley Football Club in the UK. That's true if you're Marseille or Lille in France. And that's true if you're um, one, of the, one of the breakaway clubs um, who were looking to move away in the European Super League. And they all have different plans and different thoughts behind them. Um, but but ultimately, they are all businesses. Football clubs, for example, have been businesses since the Industrial Revolution, and mm-hmm. um, I, I think just need to make enlightened decisions in that regard for the long term. So I think we can overcomplicate some of those, but I think the biggest danger um, that the sports industry faces is we are a little addicted to very short-term success, um, both on and off the pitch, and... Um, I'm a massive admirer of organisations that where, whose leaders have the bravery to take a longer-term view of things. So um, for me, one of the most impressive things that's happening this year uh, in England is the launch of The 100, um, the new cricket competition. And everyone listening to this who has grown up with county cricket, who is still a member of a county uh, of a club cricket organisation, will balk at the fact that um, the overs aren't six overs long, will balk at the potential impacts of the county game or the older spectator, um, and that, and will balk at the fact that the distraction um, that it might cause to the senior leaders of, of um, the England World's Cricket Board. And that's exactly, all those things are exactly why they should do it. <laughs> Um, because um, if you're the England World's Cricket Board, you have to take a, have to take a brave long-term view of what's going to deliver long-term growth at best, at worst, pure sustainability of your sport. And um, for me, it's, a, it's an attempt to, um, to make a fundamental shift in the way in which people see cricket in this country to both cater to the um, the fans and the audiences you currently have and those that um, you need to secure to secure the long-term health of the game. You know, it would have been so easy for Tom Harrison, Sanjay Patel, uh, Beth Barrett-Wild, the whole team delivering on the 100 to um, to just tinker on and drive iterative improvement in the women's game and what they're doing in Asian communities and what they're doing with the professional game. Um but they're doing something fundamentally different that's ultimately a bit of a career risk as well. And I've just got so much respect for that. And the longer sport can, the more sport can think in terms of a long-term view rather than the short-term success or a trophy or an event delivery or a profit, the better. Another conversation that I want to get into from earlier in that answer about kind of accountability to fans. And I think it it is a part of the thing around the 100. But the 100 is is something quite different as well in that you have i suppose more fragmented uh followings for sports um and you have a a tension between the need to protect history and the need to pursue something uh 
something new and different that can that can uh, sustain the sport into the future. What do you make of that that balance? I think it comes down to this is take this the wrong way. I think it comes down to a cold hard business decision. If you're running a business, you need to do a fantastic job with the customers you have today surpassing their expectations day in and day out. So if you put that into a cricket perspective, um, challenging it is right now. Um, those people who follow the test game, those for people who follow the 20 blast, those parents like me who have two kids on the Oxfordshire cricket pathway, you need to deliver whatever you can to them to make their experience this year better than this year than the experience last. Just like two circles had to make sure that our first priority was to the to, to the customers we already had. But that didn't mean that two circles couldn't spend a few hours a day um, thinking about, well, if, if we're delivering an exceptional job there and we're comfortable with it, where else could we look, both in terms of new countries, for example, new products that might be interesting to new groups of customers? I don't see that as heresy. I don't see that as immoral um, because two circles customers didn't own our business, didn't have a divine right to be the only people working with our business, just like I know you like your cricket, Owen, so do I. Um, so do the 65-year-old members of the county cricket associations up and down the country, but they don't own the sport. Mm. I don't own cricket any more than you do, any more than Tom Harrison does. You know, the sport is is collectively owned. All sports are collectively owned. And um, my son has as much right to play sport in a way that is meaningful to him as uh, as does Marcus Trescothic, as does Andrew Strauss, as do the England women's team. You know, it's collectively owned. And so in those few hours a day, all of us have a responsibility to think new customers as well as existing customers. So I just think that's good business. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose there's going to be, as other, other rights holders, other sports federations um, approach some of these problems, they're going to face their own different sets of dynamics. I mean, we the two of us know how different and strange that something like the cricket community is where you have what's quite a large hyper-engaged fan base who care deeply about almost every decision that's taken in a way that, you know, some people aren't as, as motivated by, uh, by that or as protective as, of that arcana maybe. And then you have other sports that have different relationships between the big casual fan base and the, and the, the core one. Absolutely. And, you know, you look, you look at something like the Olympics that's, um, you know, if the Olympics wants to be and continue to be, and I believe it is and will be, the, the sort of the ultimate pinnacle of, uh, of global sport, um, then uh, that has to change and evolve too. And the truth is it's always changed and evolved. You know, tug of war would be quite fun if it was still in, but tug of war used to be in the Olympic Games. Right, the hundreds of sports that used to be in the Olympic Games and, and are no longer. Um, including cricket once featured in the Olympic Games. Um, and, you know, cricket itself has evolved for for 200 years. You know, it, there used to be games of 22 against 11 that were were featured in the Times and were basically big gambling spectacles. You know, cricket's always evolved and changed. And, you know, in very few walks of life does anyone benefit from standing in the way of change. Mm. Like, I, I can't look back through um, my fairly dodgy knowledge of history and think anyone's really ever won by kind of going low we can't change and evolve if the mass population is moving in a way where change and evolution is is required yeah um let's let's move move the conversation on slightly because one thing the hundreds done without a, a, a game being played as yet is uh is created this irresistible rabbit hole for people who talk about sport to go down um but the uh, this is a very big question about models and kind of takes us back towards the start of the conversation. But one of the things that struck me about the development of the sports industry and, and the thing that it's almost having to steer back away from to, uh, to meet some of the challenges that, that you outline in the book is that that explosion of media rights in particular created a system where a lot of rights holders are not accountable to their fans for their success in a way that if you think the classic pre-mass media model was um you made money out of ticket sales and then to a lesser extent through partnerships with with businesses but you had to you had to produce something that your fans wanted 
um, or, or you had to retain a connection to a local community or else you would really see that suffer. Whereas in the kind of collectivized, bundled, B2B sold uh, media rights era, that that connection's been lost in all but kind of spirit and, you know, teams have had to work to keep, to maintain that because the incentives are not necessarily there. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me, um, showing my age, when um, when I started off in, in strategy consultancy and just before the century turned, um, it was sort of, it was a lot of dot-com money in corporate Britain and many people from our strategy consultancy joined these kind of vastly funded organizations that didn't have to make the pounds and shillings and pence add up. Um, and I remember having get togethers with the people who came from, who, who'd left to go to other businesses and they just came back and just said, these are some of the worst run organizations I've ever seen. This organization I, I should never have joined. It's just a mess. And you know, it's very difficult to keep proper disciplines and good customer accountability and all those things if the money's growing on trees. And I actually believe one of the, the best things for the future of sustainability of sport, even though the short term is going to be quite icky, is the fact that the money in terms of the broadcast line for um, clubs and teams and leagues around the world is no longer grows on trees. Mm. And what that leads you to do is have is ask the proper business question, which is, where's our customer base today? Where might our customer base tomorrow be? And how do we build a business model against that? You know, for to your point on local connection, um, was lucky for the book. We talked to um, we talked to about thirty people from all different walks of life, from teachers to medics to bastions of the sports industry uh, to athletes to kids. Anyway, um, we talked. One of the people we talked to was Nicola Palios. Uh, who's the vice chair at Tranmere Rovers, an English uh, fourth-tier team right now, although they'll be back. Um, she talked really eloquently about how, with her husband, Mark, who used to be chief exec of the FA uh, over here in England, how they've sort of worked on the business model for Tranmere Rovers to both deliver for the local community in the Wirral, which is one of the most underprivileged areas of, of the UK, but simultaneously also... Um, create new revenue streams that are meaningful and sustainable that are um, don't depend on on selling tickets on a Saturday afternoon uh, and don't depend on broadcast revenue so for example in that community they've got a, a line of work now that's that's profitable that um, delivers mental health programs to the NHS uh, where they'll get um, 16 to 34 year old mostly but not all men um, who are, are not likely at all to walk into a mental health clinic in an NHS hospital and, and just engage with engage with them, give them a chance to chat, chance to play some football and, and meet other people going through similar challenges and just open up a little bit about what they're going through. Mm. And that works for everyone. You know, that provides a level of support to those individuals that they would never open themselves up to in the regular medical community. It gives a level of financial income to Tranmere and it also just gives something back to the community. And thinking in all sorts of creative ways around how you as a as a club can ingratiate yourselves in your local community that's more than token community programs, but really meaningful um, yeah. and also creates an ancillary revenue stream and uses your facility, I think is going to be key. Um, I don't think there'll be many or there shouldn't be many um, professional sports teams um, that don't think creatively around how they use their facility seven days a week. You know, there's good examples of open, uh, flexible workspace in hospitality boxes now. There's a couple of clubs I've talked to who are building climbing walls on the start on the on the edge of one of their stands um, because it's it's a perfect environment to do that, and that means they get people in the venue more than more than once a week. We just got to be more creative with how we use our infrastructure in particular because the reasons that people traditionally have come into towns and environments are falling apart as retail falls apart in many of the towns and cities around the world as it goes digital. Mm. So sport has a real role, I think, to play in the way we redevelop our local areas and, and think about um, why people would go to an urban hub nowadays. And, and maybe your sports team is one of them, but the ways in which you can engage with sport around that, I think it will become increasingly important. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things as well 
when you think about the the broader shift to a, a more direct consumer model or direct to fan model for sport and some of it will involve that kind of activity in the, in the local community some of it for bigger clubs will be about a global fan base mm-hmm. um but it will it will i suppose restore a little bit more of that direct link between activity and accountability that's exactly right you know i'm not for a minute saying that um any of the biggest clubs in the premier league shouldn't chase global aspirations and global dreams you know, if you look at any industry, there is a role for, um, look at coffee, right? There's a role for a Starbucks and there's a role for my local community cafe, which is means an awful lot to me and is somewhere where I go for social connection and social benefit. Um, you know, and I, I don't think sport would or should be any different. My only challenge to that would be, I'm not genuinely sure if you can be a, um, a Liverpool or a Manchester United or a Chelsea um, without being completely hardwired to your local community, because you know there is a there is a a complete um, difference. The valuability of the to, to valuability it's not even a word to the value of the um, of the product if the fans aren't going nuts in the stadium, mm. right? There has to be a, the product has to be local and meaningful. You know, if the cop wasn't what the cop is, I would challenge whether Liverpool's appeal globally would be any more than any of the other kind of big teams with a relatively quiet fan base naming no names the other clubs <laughs> in London who aren't Chelsea who I don't support um but but the um so my point is really that I, I'm not sure I think you can be locally relevant and locally meaningful without needing to chase global dreams I'm not sure you can chase global dreams without the local relevance get the very best of sports pro sent straight to your inbox head to sportspromedia.com and sign up for the sports pro daily You'll get a roundup of all the biggest stories, features and opinion from our team every single morning. You'll find that all and much more at sportspromedia.com. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Something else that you talk about is there are growth opportunities for sport that are also social opportunities. Women's sport is probably the most uh, the, the most prominent of these and the easiest for people to wrap their head around because it's just something that's been... Um, under-resourced and underexplored for a long, long time. And you've seen with relatively short-term investment, you've seen quite a, a significant uptick in, in interest and in, in the diversity of, uh, of of the fan base that you might be able to, to bring into a sport. Um, how is How do you see that evolving and how do you see that connecting to to some of these other other elements? So I think it, it goes back to um, where we started in terms of the, the generational shifts that we're noticing. So uh, my kids' generation, I believe the kids' old generation that's that's kind of one beyond them, some of the, the people we talked to for the book, like they just have no truck and, and no experience really of that sort of gender distinction uh, in terms of sports. So it's been challenging for my daughter's idols who are 18, 19, 20, for example, to craft themselves a career in cricket. But my daughter now, age um, 10 going 11, keen as mustard, spends her evenings trading cricket attacks cards from the 100 with her brother. And the fact that they are 50% female and 50% male and the fact that the events themselves are 50% female, 50% male, just is the way she's been grown up to see the world. And and. God willing, we'll never see it anything different. So yeah. if you look at that audience, then if I'm um, if I'm running any global sports, um, the message I take is, well, look, I've got to be completely um, gender neutral, completely balanced, have exactly the same opportunities for women and men and represent those sports identically by the time, if you're being explicitly commercial about it, by the time my daughter has spending power. So... Yeah. Um, Really, we're talking about seven, eight, nine years. And what you can't do to get there in seven, eight, nine years, if you're a global sport, even a national sport, is do that iteratively by a, by a kind of funneling off like 20% rather than 10% investment. That's a step change. And so that's where, for me, private capital, third-party corporate partnerships, other ways of, of financing that um, really, really get interesting because I, because I think... Um, all you need to do is is spend an afternoon watching 
um, kids between the age of 10 and 18 play sport and you notice like that the, the trains left the station it's just about which sports can get can get ready for it quickest yeah yeah okay um we're coming to the end of our chat here we're running out of time unfortunately but um let's talk about some of the other opportunities for sport some of the some of the other ways in which change is is bringing opportunity and and getting us closer to this vision of of delivering on what sport can be socially as well as commercially and technology is one of those things and and you talk a bit about the possibilities that that we've seen through remote exercise through the pandemic for example and um you know we have all of these initiatives like parkrun that have been very successful in this country and 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 uh, a few other countries around the world in the last few years that offer a different vision of what participation can mean and you're now also seeing big venture money poured into stuff like peloton and um and you know big companies like apple getting behind connected fitness as well you know what are what are the ways that that we might start to see participation and physical activity connected to what used to be more of a lean back fan experience uh, well, in ter- so in terms of um, the fan experience, fan engagement piece, um, my my take would be that it's utter rubbish to say that younger generations can't engage with sport for longer periods of time. Um, any anyone who who trots that out should be made to sit in front of a of a kid playing Fortnite for four hours straight and tell me that they're not prepared to sit and concentrate on something happening on a screen in front of them. The point is the interactivity and the point is the narrative and the storytelling and then being in the game and in the experience in a meaningful way. And so that's for me where, where technology fits into that. Um, and, and it's perfectly possible for sport to enable that. And I'm still slightly puzzled that a lot of our technology that fan engagement tools and apps and all the things I get pitched as sure you do week in and week out is slightly peripheral to actually just amplifying the experience of watching on a screen because you know if people just watch Fortnite and said how do we amplify that through sport they'd be 99% of the way there um, in, in terms of technology more broadly and tapping into the social piece um, uh, fundamentally I think the biggest change we've seen in the last two to three years is it, it is that we've started to be able to prove that sport works we started to be able to prove that um, like the ring I wear on my finger um, to build up my immunity system by checking out my core body temperature and things because my immunity system, my left two circles were just shot, just exhausted after nine years of graft. Um, like the, what cost me 400 quid because um, I was a bit desperate sort of a year and a half ago now is 200 and will be about 25 quid um, in, in a year's time. And fundamentally, that shows me my propensity to get ill right? mm. and shows me that not only that, but when I exercise, I'm less likely to get ill. Yeah. Um, and if you can put those things together and I can also measure the fact that um, if I'm if I'm my body te- core body temperature is struggling, then I'm more likely to be in a GP's queue. Then all of a sudden you can see the supply chain for investing in exercise as a means to, to cut public health spend. And that is is completely fundamental, I think, to the way in which sport and exercise needs to position itself. It still completely mystifies me that in the UK, um, sport isn't joined at the hip with health um, in terms of where we invest and why we invest. It also mystifies me that it's not joined at the hip with, with education. We can show now empirically that kids who exercise in the morning pr- produce better work through the course of their working day um, are more mentally attuned to um, to learn, are happier, um, and we can tell that the teachers stay, and we can prove that the teachers stay longer in their posts in schools because they're more of a pleasure to teach. Uh, and again, if you can prove that longitudinally, then why is sport not joined at the hip with education as well as health? And that, mm. for me, is the is the major opportunity. So that's kind of why, I, if you put it in a nutshell, to close us out, you know, it's why I wrote the book because. You know, as an industry, we get super excited by the technology that goes into uh, fan engagement apps and all the private money going into, you know, having um, great visualizations and nice little gamifications and things like that. But 
we, we, we run the risk if we keep our eyes down that we don't take our eyes up. And actually, uh, rather than worrying about our market share and our own little game of the sports industry, I think we just need to get our eyes up a little bit and say, we collectively can do something amazing here. We've just got to think a bit more laterally in terms of the way in which we deliver on that. And, and the sign of success is one day, um, it won't be me, but one day in the mainstream papers, uh, Rashford will still be on the front page, the middle page and the back page, but it'll be the same journalist writing them all. Mm. Um, just, to, just to wrap up, what's one thing, if you were writing this kind of book at the start of the 2030s, what's one thing that you'd hope would have changed in that time? One thing I'd hope would have changed in that time. I would hope that uh, from a governmental perspective, sport will have its own cabinet position and be peers of sport and education peers of education and um, and health. I would hope that, I don't know the number, I would hope the average age of a chief executive in sport will have gone down from 50 to 38. Um, and I would hope that um, Britain will have completely redeveloped um, its town centres using old shops and new um, newly constructed housing estates to have sport at the centre of the way that provides places that newer generations want to live. Um, and I'm sorry, that's three, but I'm just taking advantage of the fact that you're on the other side of the mic today yeah. and I'm not asking the questions. Yeah. Well, just to close us out, regular listeners to the Playbook podcast will be familiar with this one, but can you sum up the message of all to play for in 10 words or less. Oh, that's really harsh. You've <laughs> given it back to me. I've, I've opened the door as well. Um, sport works if we think more laterally. All right. That's six. That's all right. Yeah. I think great. That's 10 words or less. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt, thanks very much for your time. It's a pleasure as always to talk about this stuff with you. Uh, all to play for how sport can reboot our future is out now um i suggest you seek a copy out if you're listening um but for now yeah thank you to matt rogan cheers mate thanks a lot and thanks to all of you for listening we'll be back with you again very soon bye-bye the sports pro podcast is published by sports pro media Producer is Ed Dixon.